ChinaEconTalk.substack.com So when I was in D.C. last week, I met a few fans of the show who haven't subscribed yet, and I'm really confused how this is even a thing. I tell you every episode to subscribe. ChinaEconTalk.substack.com Where I slave away translating interesting WeChat articles so you don't have to practice your rusty Chinese. U.S. alliances in Asia. How are they formed? What role do they play? And how important are they? Also, should America prioritize openness over other foreign policy principles? To discuss, we have on today Mira Rapp Hooper, Senior Fellow at the Council of Foreign Relations and the Paul Tsai Center at Yale Law School. Mira, welcome to China Econ Talk. Thanks so much. Great to be here. So first question. So Matt, now that Paul Tsai of Alibaba fame has bought the Knicks, do you guys get like a ticket deal or anything? I mean, do Kyrie and KD sort of want like tutoring on Asian contemporary politics? Well, all I can say is that my tickets have not been forthcoming, but I'm still crossing my fingers and checking the mailbox. Oh, the, 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 the travails of the junior of the junior scholars. Maybe Indeed. once we get to Paul Gerwitz level, the, um, uh, uh, the tickets will come in the mail. Those would be very deserved. So Washington uh, giving a farewell address, telling the U.S. Congress that why, by interweaving our destiny with any part of Europe, entangle our peace and prosperity in the toils of European ambition, rivalship, interest, humor, or caprice? I mean, I guess he didn't really say anything about Asia, so we're good on that front. Well, Washington gave his farewell address, suggesting that the United States should not form standing alliances. And indeed, the phrase no entangling alliances, which is often ascribed to Washington, actually comes from a Jefferson quote, not from Washington at Hmm. all. But Washington gave his farewell address on the premise that the United States formation of standing alliances would be a poor idea for U.S. grand strategy at the time. Indeed, America's decision whether or not to form alliances has always been a function of the broader grand strategic goals it wanted to achieve in the world. So when Washington said no to alliances, he was thinking first and foremost about the one that the United States had with France, an alliance that allowed it to become independent and win the Revolutionary War, which it almost certainly would not have been able to do without the French. But almost as soon as it formed the alliance, Washington um, and so many other Americans began to become disenchanted with it. And by the time Washington was preparing to leave office, the United States was trying to wriggle out of it. After the United States ended its alliance with the French, it did not form another formal standing defense pact until World War II. And that was because it believed that if it did so, European powers would be much more likely to drag it, the fledgling United States, into their own conflicts when it need to focus on domestic development, spreading its wings, becoming stronger at home. And were they right about that? Were they right that that's what the United States needed to focus on? Were there any costs with regard to making that decision not to not to go for a more uh, tied in route to the international system? Well, it's hard to say um, for much of the 19th century, I would say, because uh, there weren't a lot of even considerations of forming alliances. So it's hard to point to the counterfactual. I would say, however, that in World War One, there probably were, in fact, definitely were some notable costs about abjuring the idea of formal alliance. The United States, of course, did end 
enter World War One, but it did so as an associated power uh, with its allies refusing to adopt their war aims or integrate its troops into combined command structures. But this also had the feature of making the United States less willing to consider formal alliances as a mechanism for management of the post-war system once World War One was over. Mm-hmm. That is to say that Woodrow Wilson was ardently committed to the Versailles Treaty and the League of Nations, which was a collective security, not a collective defense agreement, something much broader. But he was not willing to consider alliances with the British or French, which might have actually um, helped to stave off what ultimately became World War II. Um, so, so I do actually think this period of protracted alliance abjurement found its cost in eventually World War II. So at the time, was there um, was there anyone, I guess, I don't know, to the right or left, who was more um, enthusiastic on making uh, stronger alliances, you know, pre-1914 and during the war? Or was Wilson already pushing it as far as he could? So basically, you know, you, you mentioned Washington's farewell address. The country's leaders referenced Washington's farewell address and sort of turned it over in their minds again and again throughout the 19th (laughs) century as they contemplated the mere prospect of forming alliances. There was some thought to the idea that Jefferson might have formed one to help ease the Louisiana Purchase. Uh, The Monroe Doctrine, which of course was not itself an alliance, was another close mark that the United States came to forming one in the sense that it depended heavily on the implicit assistance of British naval power, if not an alliance itself. Mm -hmm. But every time one of the country's presidents thought about what these alignments meant, they returned their thinking to Washington's farewell address and decided not to proceed any further. I I love the irony of like Washington knowing better than anyone else in the U.S. that like the only reason America existed in the first place was because of the French alliance. Yeah, well, indeed. But but I also think his, you know, it's important to note that his complaints about alliance at the time were actually quite particular to the pact with the French. Mm-hmm. Um, and he intended it to be that way. By the time we get to the 20th century, however, we certainly do have other American statesmen who are inclined to consider formal alliances as tools of American grand strategy, namely Republicans uh, headed up by Henry Cabot Lodge during the First World War. Um, So it was Republicans and and indeed Wilson's antagonists who thought the League of Nations was far too far-flung, who Mm -hmm. thought the idea of collective security was far too ambiguous and likely to entangle the United States in European conflicts exactly as Washington had warned and favored a far more discreet form of defense pact to allow the United States to remain very much ensconced in the world with without committing to every conflict everywhere. Um, But because, as I mentioned, Wilson was not willing to consider uh, defense pacts more narrowly defined, the League of Nations was ultimately sort of slain in an American sense without the United States joining any defense pact at all. Okay, so let's bring it up to uh, 1942, uh, which you argue uh, the creation of the United Nations being the first ever modern alliance. So the first ever modern alliance really comes between um, the United States and the British when Pearl Harbor is attacked. And we agree to – and that is early 1942, right? The Declaration of the League of the United Nations. We agree to combine commands to prosecute the war jointly. um, And then we open our alliance to what becomes dozens of other countries who are prosecuting the war against the Axis. Mm -hmm. Um, It is a wartime military pact. um, And essentially, it is – 
is formed from the United States perspective for the very reason that the pact with the French was also formed in the first place. That be- was because the United States believed it could not survive without this alliance. Sure. Because of the degree to which technology had changed, because of the degree to which the United States was strategically reliant on the maintenance of the British to patrol the seas in the Atlantic to maintain the balance of power, and because of Germany's startling rise and conquest of Europe, Washington came to believe that it could not survive in the world unless it formed a military pact, Mm -hmm. tied its fate to other European allies, and prosecuted a war jointly with war aims and common. This is in contrast to perhaps a Bismarck sort of making alliances for like national aggrandizement as opposed to um, the the sort of initial cause being you know a grave threat on the on the state itself. Yep, this was a pretty classic wartime defense pact. There was no vision for it exactly um, until the country was attacked. Of course, there had been the Atlantic Alliance and moves between the British and the United States to approach one another as allies. But until the Cassis Belly actually figured into the American equation, it would have been very difficult for Roosevelt to enter into a formal pact with the British. Sure. Um, but once it was formed, um, again, the prosecution of the war and the maintenance of the this alliance became an issue of national survival for the United States, um, and it transformed the way it thought about its own grand strategy. That is to say that when the war ended, the United States realized that not only had it used an alliance to vanquish the Axis powers, but that the British Empire was waning alongside the prosecution of the war, and that when the peace concluded, the United States was now going to be the one standing astride uh, as the most significant power in the international system alongside the Soviet Union. Sure. Um, So grand strategy was concomitantly transformed. Sure. So when you talk about the U.S. realizing, I remember looking at like polling numbers about support for alliances in the U.N. in 1945 and we're up at like 95 percent. Right. It was it was a true, you know, both people argue today about like to what extent is uh, elite versus uh, um, sort of popular opinion uh, divergent with respect to China. But like at this point, support for alliances was like almost entirely universal. Well, I would actually distinguish between the two things. At the end of the war, we would not call the U.N. an alliance. Mm -hmm. So when When the war ended, the United Nations was an international organization, which everybody pretty much, as you're saying, roundly agreed was the right way to manage the prospect of conflict Mm -hmm. um, into the future. So the formation of the UN was the initial solution to ensure that there would not ever be another world war. It was a follow on to Wilson's 14 points and the Treaty of Versailles and the League of Nations. um, And it was the vision for managing conflict and cooperation through international institutions. But very tricky. It gets complicated. So 1946, 1947, we've got Turkey and Greece going crazy. Talk to me about the great debate and um, what were the uh, different different intellectual strains going into formulating how the U.S. should, uh, you know, not just not just live by like the platitudes of the UN, but really, um, you know, put the put their cards on the table when it comes to protecting interests abroad. Yeah. So so part of what was revealed um, as the Cold War with the Soviet Union set in was the fact that international institutions and laws and rules and norms sort of universally adopted were not going to be sufficient to prevent great power competition and conflict. That is to say that three years into the UN's life, it was already clear that competition between the 
Soviet Union and the United States was going to become the clear threat access in the international system Mm -hmm. and that an international institution alone was not sufficient to manage it. The United States actually considered forming NATO for the first time because a group of European allies themselves formed their own defense pact called the Brussels Pact, Mm -hmm. which was an attempt to band together in the face of a rising Soviet Union. And the United States uh, declined to join the Brussels Pact when their European partners first brought it to them. But the mere idea that such a thing should be possible, that indeed a peacetime security guarantee to Europe could help to hold the balance of power so the United States would not have to fight the Soviet Union at all, planted the seed that turned into NATO. Mm -hmm. Um, So what was the date there? So NATO is uh, April of 1949. And Brussels was how how much earlier? The Brussels Pact was brought to the United States in 1948. Okay. And the, the basic idea here was really a revolution in American grand strategic thinking, which is to say that it's only two alliances previously, the one with the French and the one um, during the Second World War, had been formed to prosecute and win a war and ensure national survival. In this case, the logic was different. The idea was that if the United States formed its alliance with NATO, it would deter conflict, be able to defend against it as necessary, but ideally never have to fight the war at all. Mm-hmm. Um, so this was an incredibly ambitious aim. It was uh, a different logic than the one it had pursued in its previous alliances. And then the same logic that inspired NATO would ultimately inspire its ring of hub and spokes bilateral defense pacts in Asia as well. So so what else is in the water? I mean, you know, it, it sort of looks very um, cut and dry. We got NATO, we got Seattle, we got all these nice defense pacts with uh, uh, South Korea and Japan. But at the time, there was, clearly was a there was a big debate and and plenty of pushback on what, as you uh, as you as you made clear, was a big uh, sea change in uh, in U.S. strategic thinking. Well, um, you know, the the clear alternative at the point that NATO was being negotiated was that the United States would not have done this at all. The United States would not have guaranteed the security of far off countries using its air power and a political commitment. Mm-hmm. Um, and there was reason to think that indeed that that might have been the preferred way to go. Indeed, as we already discussed, the the um, United Nations gave cause to believe for some to believe that uh, p- that uh, major political disagreements could still be negotiated negotiated through um, major international institutions. But more than that, the sort of domestic debate was in no small part due to the fact that this was a very big change in the fundamental balance of power between the executive and congressional branches within Mm. the United States. A lot of the controversy around NATO before it was signed and sealed had to do with the fact that essentially Congress was worried that a security guarantee to Europe would amount to the pre-delegation of congressional authority to make war to the president of the United States. Little did they know. Little did they know (laughs) um, that in signing a defense pact with Europe um, and one that seemed to imply that the United States would aid Europe in the event of a military attack, Congress would give to the president its power to make war. Mm -hmm. Now, of course, Article 5 guarantees, whether in NATO or in any other U.S. alliance, do not promise any specific action. And in fact, this was how the Truman administration got around Congress's concern. Congress would not let the U.S. president sign on to a defense pact whereby it sealed its fate to join in advance any war that might happen in Europe. Nevertheless, the United States did create a series of promises that nonetheless seemed to imply that Washington would join its allies in the case of war. Um, And in the eyes of many in Congress, this resulted in a major rebalancing towards the executive branch. So this this idea of extended deterrence, like 
who's the genius staffer who came up with this as a way to uh, as a way to square the circle here and get and get Congress on board with something that clearly a big chunk of them were really uncomfortable with? Well, the idea of extended deterrence really comes about through multiple avenues. Basically, in its prosecution of World War II, the United States has already started to envision um, the need for forward bases after the war concludes. That mm-hmm. is well before NATO is formed, five years before NATO is ever even a vision. The Joint Chiefs of Staff are prosecuting the Second World War, and they argue that the United States is going to need a ring of bases in both Asia and Europe to be able to deter and prosecute conflicts if they are to occur again. Mm -hmm. This is a recognition of a massive shift in the balance of power that means that the British will not be able to be our front lines anymore. It's a recognition that the United States now faces threats both across the Atlantic and across the Pacific. And it's an understanding that changed military technology, namely at that point in the form of long-range bombers, but foreseeably missile technology as well, means that the United States Oceans no longer serve as the geographic barriers that they once did. Yeah. I remember, um, so I did my thesis on Leo Pasvolsky, um, one of the um, uh, people with a very large bald head running around at the time. And his, uh, his and one of the other arguments about air power you were talking about is like, yes, on the one hand, um, the U.S. is more open to attack, but also like, if we just bomb people, they'll do whatever they want. We'll, they'll do whatever we want. So the, the, the sort of course of power of the international community um, is like if you're a great power, uh, mul- really multiplied by the um, uh, by the changing uh, military technology. To be sure, there was, however, a firm understanding at the point that the Cold War began to take hold that the United States would not long have a monopoly on any technology, sure. um, that the Soviet Union already had long-range power production capabilities, and that within a short period of time, it would have nuclear weapons. Happens too. Sure. Um, so there was certainly a desire to exploit American advantages while they obtained, but also an understanding that while basing forward troops and bombers in Europe, the United States was opening itself up to significant vulnerabilities. Sure. Um, and those were simply sort of accepted as part and parcel of this new forward defense strategy. So let's just come back to uh, what you mentioned earlier, the sort of strategic ambiguity built into uh, the, the wording of a lot of these treaties. So the strategic ambiguity built into the wording of a lot of these treaties is largely an American domestic product. Mm-hmm. Uh, when the United States was negotiating NATO, it was uh, sort of negotiating simultaneously in a two-level game, trying to get the treaty past the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, which was chaired at the time by Republican Senator Arthur Vanderberg, um, and it was negotiating with its European partners. And its European partners unequivocally wanted language in the treaty that stated that an attack on any one of them would result in military intervention by the United States. Sure. Because why not? I mean, these are these are bombed out countries. There's they're bombed out countries. They had no prayer of standing up against the Soviet Union on their own if it came to that. And at the time, the United States had no forward military presence in Europe. So all it was soliciting was a strong political guarantee from the United States and potentially the threat of using air power um, and implicitly nuclear weapons on their behalf should it come to that. Mm-hmm. But there was no question that the Europeans were looking for the strongest guarantee they could possibly get from the United States. 
states. Mm-hmm. On the other side of the ledger, however, the Senate Foreign Relations Committee was absolutely irate when it saw some language that was consistent with European wishes that essentially would have pre-committed the United States to enter a conflict on Europe's behalf without having to consult Congress. Sure. This was a big to-do that actually uh, almost could have derailed NATO uh, because it occurred as uh, the U.S. Secretary of State position was changing hands from George Marshall to Dean Acheson. Um, the new language almost fell through the cracks. Mm-hmm. Um, and Dean Acheson essentially had to rescue Article 5 of the NATO treaty <laughs> um, so that the treaty could stay on course and ultimately pass the Senate by an overwhelming majority when it did that spring. Sure. So we just talked about how, like, actually, there was a fair amount of this that was pretty contingent, but very little has been touched with these alliances for, um, you know, going on 70 years now. So, you know, to what extent is that because these have made sense, because this sort of stuff is path dependent? What do you what do you sort of make of uh, the, the consistency that you've seen that we've seen over the intervening decades? Yeah, it's it's a great question. Um, and it bears stating very clearly because it is, I would say, the great triumph of America's alliance system. No U.S. ally has been the victim of a major attack that would have been prescribed by a treaty in force. Mm. Um, That is to say that to the extent that we can measure whether or not these things work, it looks like they do. However, that's an incredibly hard thing to measure yeah. because, of course, not, you, not, not so much, not not too many regressions you can run on zero. Right? Exa- well, <laughs> not too many regressions you can run on zero, and because the record is replete with what we in political science would call selection effects. That is to say, that when you don't see attacks on an ally, you don't know if it's because the ally's extended deterrence was so bristling, or because the adversary never intended to attack at all. Sure. However, there is a few things we can say about why alliances seem to be um, so fruitful when it comes to their record. The first is that for all that they formed a lot of alliances very quickly, America's post-war planners were pretty choosy in the places that they chose to extend security guarantees. Who was on the bubble? Who was on the bubble? Who was on the bubble? Yeah, who didn't make it? Well, the the group that probably shouldn't have made it was CETO, the Southeast Asia Treaty Organization. Okay, sure. So John Foster Dulles, who was the sort of key protagonist of that alliance relationship, went a little bit too far too fast. Um, Foster Dulles was often referred to as a pactomaniac because of his enthusiasm for prescribing alliances for sort of every geostrategic ill. Um, but and they look nice on maps too, right? You just they color things do. in and then it's like, okay, this is settled. Definitely. Um, and especially if you've already got a containment tagline and you're trying to ring in a threat, alliances are a great way to do it. Yeah. Um, but basically, because policymakers have been quite choosy where they extend alliances, they make sure that their partners are relatively responsible in the first place. Um, here I would cite some work by by Victor Cha, however, who argues that in several places, American policymakers actually extended alliances to try to control prospective allies. And mm. that's also definitely true. Um, so in cases like Taiwan, which is no longer a formal treaty ally, or South Korea, the United States not only chose carefully where to extend its security guarantee, but actually used the treaty promise itself to try to restrain the ally in question. That Mm -hmm. is, it tailored its security guarantee narrowly enough that the ally would have limited freedom of action. And once the treaty was in place, they also used it to exert control over that ally's defense policy. Mm-hmm. So by virtue of forming an alliance, the United States gains leverage over the treaty partner, which can in turn cause it to act much more responsibly on the international stage. It's just because – and then also the domestic politics, I imagine, get like locked in into – 
um, okay, we have this thing, we can't really change it, like, let's not spend money on our own defense. And then once you don't spend money on your own defense, your sort of degrees of freedom get limited pretty quickly. That, that's exactly right. It, it induces a dependency on behalf of the ally that might not exist there otherwise. Um, and even when allies do spend um, quite healthily on their own defense, they tend to do it in ways that are complementary to a U.S. security guarantee sure. as opposed to substitutive. So if you live in a world in which the United States is your security guarantor, you most likely have decided that you don't need nuclear weapons to keep yourself safe. The yeah. key exception to that um, is the French, who had a treaty with the United States and went ahead and proliferated their own nuclear arsenal anyway. Um, but by and large, you're thinking about your capabilities as complementary to Washington's, and you assume that you would fight or deter any war alongside of Washington, not in its stead. Okay, so elephant in the room, Vietnam. Um, you talk about uh, the difference between a partnership and an alliance. So um, what's so dangerous about these partnerships? So partnerships in and of themselves are not a priori dangerous. However, there is a widespread misconception in the political science literature about alliances that suggests that alliances frequently entangle the United States in foreign conflicts. And you'll often see conflicts see conflicts ranging from Vietnam to You can argue, I mean I guess 90, 91 Gulf War too, right? You could. You could argue certainly um you could argue Kosovo. Um, some might argue Iraq in 2003. That's a little bit of a stretch. Yeah. Um, but the actual empirical record does not show the United States entering major wars on behalf of treaty allies. Rather, it shows the United States entering wars on behalf of partners with whom it might have some shared interest but has not na made nearly as solid of a defense commitment. Mm -hmm. So there we can look at the Vietnam conflict where CETO was, um, you know, in the same region. But Vietnam was not a part of CETO. And indeed, CETO was a relatively inoperable defense pact. So what if Vietnam was in the was in the game? I mean, would we would we even be talking about this? Right. Or well, or could it have gone the other way? And then, uh, you know, the, the PRC would be too scared to support uh, an insurgency going directly against the U.S. treaty. So ally. again, because the selection effects of alliances are important, I think it's highly unlikely that Vietnam ever would have been considered mm -hmm. seriously for defense pact membership as part of a multilateral guarantee by the United States. That is to say that by the time the United States formed CETO, it was precisely because the French had just collapsed at Dien Bien Phu and the United States understood the situation in Vietnam to be completely untenable from a security perspective. Sure. So it, that would have been a red flag to security guarantee formation. Um, so the other uh, big big one we haven't touched on is, is Taiwan. Let's maybe stop in like, I don't know, 2010. Um, but talk a little bit about the, uh, the evolution of the U.S. commitment and what uh, impact you think it had on the way history played out. Yeah, it's it's a hugely deterministic feature um, in certainly U.S.-Taiwan relations, U.S.-China relations, and China-Taiwan relations. The United States formed a mutual defense guarantee with Taiwan in 1954, the exact same time as it formed a uh, treaty relationship with uh, CETO. Uh, the Vietnam conflict was just heating up. And so was it was there debate at the time? Was this was this everyone feeling really bad um, for Chiang Kai-shek losing um, that there was, you know, this was sort of like who China lost things. So no one was willing to sort of throw Taiwan to the wind as well. Or the concern was that essentially Chiang Kai-shek's stronghold on Taiwan was going to give out. So, yeah. of course, we had um, already had the Chinese Civil War. The United States had been 
patrolling the Taiwan Straits ever since 1949 and had loosely committed to supporting Taiwan. But actually, like South Korea, Taiwan was left out of Dean Acheson's defense perimeter speech when yeah. he gave it in 1950, which sort of becomes an elementary lesson in extended deterrence theory. That is, if you tell your adversary that you don't intend to defend something that they care about, you're opening it up to attack. So the United States had seen South Korea concomitantly get invaded by the North after failing to commit to it. It did not want to fight another Korean war in Asia. And China was increasingly shelling the offshore islands of Kamoi and Matsu. So although the United States was very wary of giving a security guarantee to Chiang Kai-shek, who it did not consider to be a responsible actor on the international stage, it decided to do it anyway and basically formulated a much narrower treaty promise that would not allow Chiang to try to use the alliance on his behalf if he tried to ta- retake the mainland. Which was something he obsessed Taiwan. about until the day he died. Exactly. So um, so this is so this coming back to your earlier point of, uh, you know, making sure that, you know, the, the whole half of the point of these alliances being a, a way for the U.S. to uh, constrain their their allies from doing aggressive things and dragging the U.S. into war. Because if you're saying, OK, like, look, we'll back you up if you get, you know, if if, if something bad happens to you um, in your home, but we are you know, if you you start uh, sending boats to Suzhou or whatever, all bets are off. Exactly. So what Taiwan is really the best example of is the ability of the United States to tailor its alliance promises to its allies and the target in question. Mm -hmm. So in its alliance problem to promise to Taiwan, Washington refused to countenance the use of any offensive force by Chiang Kai-shek. And they sold like they only sold defensive weapons, right? Whatever defensive weapons mean. That is that's a separate (laughs) set of arrangements entirely. Um, But it also uh, refused to, um, on paper, support Taiwan in a potential war over Kamoi and Matsu, Mm -hmm. leaving it the option to intervene in the Taiwan Straits crises in 1954 and 1958, but not compelling it to do so. Now, flash forward um, to the Nixon administration, and Richard Nixon and Henry Kissinger have come into office basically intent on resetting relations with China in the sort of ultimate first reset. That, um, as part of a desire to gain uh, Cold War leverage by picking off China from the Sino-Soviet axis, which is very clearly already collapsed. Mm-hmm. Um, upon his first visit to China, which Kissinger takes before Nixon ever gets there, um, he hears very clearly from Mao and from Cho Enlai that a condition of establishing relations between the United States and the People's Republic of China will be that the United States end its alliance with Taiwan. Mm -hmm. Because you cannot recognize both the Republic of China and the People's Republic of China. Between 1949 and the early 1970s, you had Taiwan representing all of China at the United Nations and in many other international bodies. Most countries on Earth recognize Taiwan and not China. And the PRC's request was essentially, if you're going to recognize us, you have to act like it. And you cannot form or, or you cannot maintain, rather, an alliance with an entity that we do not consider to be a sovereign state. Sure. Um, So in pursuing the opening with China, Nixon and Kissinger knew from the beginning that a condition was the abrogation of the alliance with Taiwan. Now, this was a very uncomfortable thing that they committed themselves to, and they put it off as much as they could. Um, First, Nixon put it off until after his re-election. Then he wanted to push it back further until after the midterms. Again, uncomfortable because Taiwan had a huge groundswell of domestic support. 
Taiwan had a huge groundswell of domestic support. And frankly, it's just not a good look for any power on the international (laughs) stage, right? You are abandoning a longstanding ally um, to open diplomatic relations with a communist country as part of a deeply real politique Cold War gambit. Um, It doesn't elicit a lot of sympathy. But exactly as you say, on both the left and the right in the United States, there were huge Taiwan lobbies um, that the Nixon administration had to contend with. Um, So Nixon puts it off. He gets mired in Watergate. He doesn't carry through. The charge gets passed over to Ford, who also kind of ducks when the ball comes at his head. Um, And of course, Kissinger is sort of stewarding this process along himself the whole time. And finally, Carter makes good on the premise. Carter? Carter. Carter, Mr. Human Rights. Um, well, I guess Taiwan wasn't the you know happiest place to be living from that perspective either. But anyways, but, but you it's, d- it, it's, no, it's, no, it's no cultural revolution. China. Yes, indeed. Um, so Carter makes good on the promise. He formally proceeds with the recognition of China on the international stage and in so doing also has to abrogate the alliance with Taiwan. Mm. Um, there is such a gradual groundswell of domestic opposition to this fact um, that first, actually, before they pass the Taiwan Relations Act, uh, there is a court case brought against Jimmy Carter by none other than Republican Senator Barry Goldwater um, questioning his <laughs> authority to end a mutual defense treaty unilaterally. Okay. The Supreme Court rules that they cannot actually pine on the subject. And Congress- Was it like some standing BS or was it- Basically, yeah. Um, And Congress putting together the sort of left and right wing support for Taiwan um, rallies in response with the Taiwan Relations Act, which is not a formal- mutual defense treaty, but is an act of Congress, Mm. which says that the United States remains committed to the peace and security of Taiwan and intends to provide for it through the provision of arms of a defensive nature. And that is the security provision that remains with respect to Taiwan to this day. So on the one hand, you can look at this history of U.S. alliances and no sort of big war being kicked off as a, a real success. And we haven't had a great power war. But, you know, History is contingent, right? And you know, perhaps there, uh, you know, the percentage chance of uh, something large kicking off because of these commitments has uh, has increased, and this may end up being something that happens going forward. So, aside from just like looking back at the historical record and saying like, okay, like there haven't been any wars, that's great. Is there any other? way to sort of address the question of, you know, these commitments potentially adding adding more kindling to the to the fire? Yeah. I mean, I think I think there's no question that by virtue of having international commitments sort of writ large, the United States exposes itself to the possibility of getting entangled in pursuits. Um, but I would note that generally I think this process is a lot more subtle uh, than the literature and political science and international relations would generally lead us to expect. So when we talk about the alliance security dilemma in international relations, we often talk about the likelihood that the United States is going to sort of get dragged kicking and screaming into a war that is against its interests. But that very rarely happens in part because the United States and its allies tend to share interests. If they didn't have interests in common, they probably wouldn't be allies in the first place. Sure. So a much more subtle process is what I think actually occurs quite a bit on the international stage. And that is to say that once the United States has made a commitment, 
its own sense of its interest tends to dilate or expand alongside its allies, making it interested perhaps in interventions that it might not have previously considered, but nonetheless thinking of those as part and parcel of its vital national interests once they come to pass. So this is a far more subtle process that I think is very difficult to monitor. And if you're committed to a grand strategy that has you deeply rooted in the international system and practicing forward defense, um, it may be all but inevitable. Nonetheless, there's a clear place where in the 21st century, this is something that policymakers have to interrogate deeply. And that is with respect to a rising China. All right, let's jump in. Is World War III worth fighting over Taiwan? Well, I certainly hope that we are not going to be faced with that question. The first thing that I It's a podcast. This is what we do. Uh, Of course. (laughs) But uh, the the first thing I'll note is that U.S. policy on the question is the one China policy. That is to say, it it is the one China policy. It is the Taiwan Relations Act and is the six assurances actually taken all together. But that is to say that the United States wants to see the cross-straits dispute settled peacefully. Um, But that also it does not have a formal security guarantee with Taiwan as we've already discussed, that rises to the level of a NATO or U.S.-Japan treaty. However, there is no question that the balance of power over Taiwan and with respect to China is shifting rapidly. That is to say that in particular with China's investment in A2AD capabilities that make it increasingly difficult for the United States to claim to be able to enter into a conflict or operate within the first island chain on behalf of its allies, the United States claims to credibly be able to come to Taiwan's defense are going to diminish by the year. Um, So the United States retains a strong interest in figuring out how to help Taiwan defend itself in a manner that is going to uh, allow Taiwan to uh, sort of maintain its integrity over the long haul, even as uh, the balance of power shifts. The two Taiwan Straits crises, I think, are just like remarkable moments in U.S. history of three Taiwan Straits crises, three Taiwan Straits crises of of um, repeatedly presidents sort of making very clear that this was actually something really important and worth um, putting carriers and whatnot in, in, in harm's way. And it's, I think, very much an open question now in the Trump era and, you know, with with China being in a very different place than it was in like, whatever, 1956, uh, that uh, that calculation is, is not necessarily shifting, but the conversation around it has, has well, evolved. I think sure. the calculation probably has shifted dramatically. And and certainly um, we can look at the last Taiwan Straits crisis, that is um, 1995-1986, as a catalytic point um, for China more than anything um, in terms of what it hoped to pursue and prevent in its own defense policy. So while in that crisis the United States was able to send two carriers close to the Taiwan Straits to send a message to Beijing that it should should not escalate over Taiwan, China took away from those carrier deployments the idea that it should not allow U.S. intervention so close to its shores and in something that it considered to be a sovereignty issue ever again. Mm. Thereby, you saw an acceleration of investments that already were going on in short-range missiles and other technologies that we would associate with A2AD and a strategy for using them that would explicitly hold American carriers and other large surface combatants at risk and significantly raised to the cost to the United States of even using its Navy to signal again in peacetime crises like this one. If we had another Taiwan Straits crisis that looked like that again today, I do not think we would see two large American carriers nearly that close to China's shores. Sure. 
So, so we sort of talked in the particular case about Taiwan, but uh, maybe let's go a little more broad about what the rise of China means for U.S. alliance commitments in general. Well, if we circle back to the original purpose of America's alliances, I think there is no question that they matter more than ever, particularly in Asia. If we recall the fact that they were first formed because the country decided that it had to defend itself through a forward defense strategy and it needed bases and extended deterrence to do that, the place where those things are now the most crucial is, of course, in Asia rather Mm -hmm. than in Europe against a Soviet Union type competitor. Um, Of course, the United States system of alliance guarantees in Asia is not all focused on sort of China monolithically and is not one central organization. Rather, you've got a system of bilateral so-called hub and spokes pacts with South Korea, Japan, the Philippines, and Australia. Um, And they all have slightly different aims. They see the region slightly differently. Um, And this is always going to be a challenge as the United States seeks to manage its alliances. But the key condition that is now occurring in Asia that never occurred in Europe before is that the United States is in relative decline with respect to China. Mm. That is to say, while the U.S.-Soviet Union dynamic was strictly bipolar, that is, we thought of the international system being sorted cleanly into two camps. The U.S. was always on the right delta. Exactly. Things were always more favorable for the United States. And indeed, for the end of the Cold War, the Soviet Union was actually in abject decline. We just didn't know it. Mm. However, the United States is going to remain quite solid on the international stage, a preeminent global power for decades to come. But in Asia, both economically and militarily, it undoubtedly faces relative decline. So what does that mean from a strategy perspective? It cannot possibly achieve the same goals if it doesn't engage in cooperation and burden sharing with its allies. That Mm -hmm. is, it needs Japan, South Korea, Australia, the Philippines, I would say New Zealand, which is no longer a formal treaty ally, uh, more than it ever has. They fell out? What happened? Oh, the the Kiwis actually sort of left voluntarily. Oh! Yeah, in the 1980s because they were opposed to uh, nuclear uh, energy and nuclear weapons coming into their ports via U.S. surface vessels. Um, But the point is that the balance of power calculation requires the United States to rely on its allies. Uh, Another point I would make, however, is that relying on alliances strictly in the military domain is no longer going to be enough. So whereas America's alliances have been deeply focused on defense and deterrence of high-end traditional conflict, uh, conventional conflict in nuclear weapons, we can already see that America's alliances are having to grapple with a broader set of problems. Gray zone deterrence in maritime conflicts in the East and South China Seas, cyber conflict, um, the possibility of an internet governance system that seeks to establish some form of digital authoritarianism, competition over economics and development in the form of Belt and Road. So these alliances are almost necessarily going to have to become broader in their aims than they have been in the past if they are to engage the forms of competition that we're likely to see between the United States and China and with respect to order in Asia. So Trump has done a real number on all of this. We talk, you, you talk about, OK, we've got these like 10 new challenges or whatever. And now there's a president who doesn't really 
care to the extent to which you believe these things are worth uh, reinvesting in. Uh, you know, how much sort of has been lost by having a president who's not uh, not really on board with the whole alliance deal? It's sort of the question of the hour and for the next year and a half. And I think we're only going to know the answer once he is out of office and a new administration can survey the damage. Sure. Um, we have obviously seen in the past that America has stumbled in the world stage previously and yet confidence in our leadership can rebound. When yeah, sure. I mean, I remember reading, oh, 2007, like, um, like the world hates America. We're polling at 30%. All of a sudden Obama shows up and it's back to like, you know, 89 90% it, in countries around the world. Exactly. But so that I was exactly the rebound I was thinking of. However, um, I think there is a unique feature of the Trump era that will be very difficult to come back from, which is that while the United States made what many, um, and myself included, considered to be foreign policy blunders during the Bush administration, uh, the U.S. president was fundamentally still acting in a perception of the U.S. national interest and uh, took some amount of care over the international system. Mm. The United States has has elected a president and he has acted in a leadership position on the world stage um, with reckless disregard to both American interests and interests more broadly. And nowhere is that more true than with respect to our alliances. This president has a 30-year-long history of antagonizing American allies because he sees them as dependent on the United States, which he sees as a weakness, um, because he thinks they don't pay enough for their own security, when, of course, America's alliances are not protection rackets. Um, and rather, each ally contributes through their own spending on defense. Um, and because he is entirely uninterested in the entire grand strategy on which America's alliances are premised, that is the idea that America should have a strategy of forward defense. The current president actually would be perfectly happy to think of only the American homeland as the object of American national defense. And in such a strategy, America's allies are irrelevant. So in some ways, the degree to which the United States can rebound and rebuild with respect to its allies is likely to be the, the hardest test. They are the ones who have felt the most significant delta um, in the change of relations that's occurred during this era. And they are the ones who we're going to need the most on the other side of it if we are to rebuild. Yeah, it's it's, you know, coming back to the very beginning of this conversation where we talked about sort of the ambiguity built into the U.S. commitment with respect to NATO and these other um, and these other alliances. It really is a spell. It's really like a magical thing you have to get people to believe in. And, you know, once someone peeks behind the window and and, you know, once you get a peek behind the, the curtain and see that uh, not everyone is sort of built into it if there isn't this very explicit sort of chain where okay like a bomb goes off and then you know all the all the planes take off and and all of a sudden there are there are marines in x country uh it it just becomes a much uh trickier thing to um to sort of neuter yourself in some ways which is what we were talking about earlier the the big um upside of these alliances and how they change the sort of domestic dynamics in other countries absolutely I mean, alliances are fundamentally based on an alignment of political in addition to defense interests and what we have seen represented on the world stage for the last three years is the idea that all of a sudden the united states does not see its fate as aligned with its allies and indeed is acting in a manner that is strictly antithetical to 
them. Um, and of course, alongside that dynamic, this incredibly jarring sort of um, decoupling of political alignment embodied in the current U.S. president is the structural trend of China's rise that makes this the most damaging in Asia more than anywhere. That is to say that because of Trump's alliance and general foreign policy mismanagement, China has been the undeniable beneficiary. Uh, whereas at the end of the Obama administration, there was a very strong argument to make that Xi Jinping had wildly overplayed his hand, militarizing the South China Sea and pursuing a very assertive foreign policy to the consternation of many partners throughout Asia. Trump's complete recklessness, whether by way of economic protectionism, fire and fury swinging to, you know, warm embrace on North Korea or basic dereliction of duty on other areas of uh, strategy in Asia, such as the South China Sea, China's actually benefited from having the opportunity to look like the great power adult in the room when the United States is uniquely unpredictable. And that is a vacuum that we are unlikely to be able to fill again. So let's maybe do the Arthur Vandenberg version of Trump anti sort of active defense policy in, in 2019. Could you quickly give sort of your most generous interpretation of what a sort of, you know, less Twitter dominated, but still big recalculation of American commitments abroad and what issues you may have with it? Uh, so I think, you know, the the a more restrained uh, form of U.S. grand strategy has actually been laid out um, by any number of international relations scholars. Um, I would point to the book Restraint uh, by Barry Posen. I would also point to any number of scholars at the Cato Institute and elsewhere, um, but in particular, Chris Preble and Emma Ashford at the Cato Institute that make, you know, very sound arguments um, for why the United States should increasingly transfer responsibility responsibility to allies, um, spend less on defense, and focus much more on a domestic agenda. Um, the key ways that Barry Posen suggests that we disentangle ourselves from international commitments abroad is indeed by ending alliances in their current form and transferring some of that responsibility to NATO allies, to Japan, to South Korea. My key quibble, however, um, with those grand strategies are, number one, that our alliances don't exist as an end unto themselves, but they exist because we've decided we need them for defense and deterrence. So the purpose of ending an alliance is not simply to free ourselves from a commitment, but it indicates that we don't believe that forward defense is necessary to keep us safe in the world. Now, Barry Posen would say that it's not necessary to the extent that we've practiced it. Mm -hmm. um, and what I would retort in return is that we're then putting ourselves in a position where if a crisis or a conflict does erupt, we're faced with having to fight our way back in at much higher cost and without the support of allies uh, than we would be if we were there in the first place. Sure. Um, the second big quibble that I have um, with most of these arguments is that they are motivated by a desire to save money on the defense budget. There is no question that closing a huge number of bases abroad saves us some money on defense. It is a hair's worth of savings compared to what we need to do on a domestic level to make a dent in our most pernicious problems related to things like entitlement spending. Um, so while I'm all for consider And a hair's worth what it costs to fight a major war. Indeed. Um, so while I'm all for considering proposals that might reform the defense budget and bring spending down by a bit, I haven't seen an argument that suggests to me that the savings that you get 
from a restraint grand strategy are worth the potential costs of disengagement and potentially having to fight our way back in without allies on our own, completely unprepared for the potential crisis or conflict that we're facing. Thanks so much for being a part of China Econ Talk. My pleasure. China Econ Talk is edited by Jason MacRonald and Kaiser Guo and is a proud member of the Seneca Network from China. For other great shows on China, check out the Caixin Seneca Business Brief, the Pan Daily Tech Buzz China, the New Voices Podcast, and of course, the Seneca Podcast, now in its ninth year. Until next week. Shut the